Listen, we're so glad you guys are here. We've been in Genesis for 42 stinking weeks, right? We're 42, and guess what? We've got five week chapters and five weeks left, and then we start our Christmas service series. Can you believe that? You guys ready for Christmas? It's ridiculous. It is utterly ridiculous, right? But we are getting ready to do that. But we're not done in our journey. So if you're online in here in Deland, wherever you are, grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Genesis chapter 45. Genesis chapter 45 is where we're going to where we're going to go today. And guess what? We're talking about Joseph again because we've been talking about Joseph in chapter 37, and we'll talk about Joseph until we get through this book in chapter 50. So how many of you in the land online in here, how many of you have ever had somebody that you hated or somebody hated you? Come on, this is Sunday morning church people. Let's raise our hand and be honest, okay? Right? It's no fun. It's no fun when there is that kind of animosity and hatred, right, between someone. I don't know if we would call them our enemies, right? Maybe we would. I don't know. But I am certain that within this room and everybody online and in the land, that everybody in here understands the discord and the animosity that comes when there is that kind of hatred or that kind of feeling or resentment or anger or hurt toward another person. We can all relate to that, right? Well, as we pick up our story right here in Genesis 45, I just want to give you just a little bit of a back history just to remind you before we jump into Joseph's story why this is such a big deal. Joseph was 17 years old and scripture tells us he was his dad's favorite child, right? He was his dad's favorite child. He was the one his father loved the most. And at 17, with his brand new coat, right, Genesis 37 verse 4 says this. His brother saw that their father loved him more than any of them. They hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream. 17-year-old brother has a dream and he tells his other brothers and they hated him all the more. Because he said to them, listen, this is the dream that I had. When we were binding sheaves of grain in the field, my sheaf rose and stood upright. Your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, do you intend to reign over us while you actually rule us? They hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Pick up the narrative in verse 11. His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept these matters in mind. And so they hated him three times in seven verses. They went from hate, hated, to hated all the more, right? Until we pick up the narrative in verse 20 or 18. It says they saw him, Joseph, in the distance before he reached them. They plotted to kill him. So they've gone from hatred to murder. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Let's kill him, throw him into one of these wells, cisterns, and say a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams, right? So Reuben, the older brother, said, let's not take his life, right? Let's throw him. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the well here in the desert, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came, they stripped him of his robe, right? This beautiful ornamented robe that he was wearing, right? They took him and they threw him into the cistern and the cistern was empty and there was no water in it. So they didn't kill him, but they did take his robe off of him. They did throw him into an empty hole. 
Then Judah said this, right? Judah said, what are we going to gain if we kill him and cover up his blood? Now, this is brothers talking about a brother, right? I grew up not liking my brother, but not to this degree, okay? Right? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, right? After all, he's our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed, right? So when the Midianite merchants, these gypsy traders come by, guess what they do? They pull him up out of the well. They sell him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, right? And then they took him to Egypt. And then according to scripture, this is what happens to him once he gets to Egypt. Once he was taken down to Egypt, Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, he was the captain of the guard. He bought him from those gypsy traders, and that's where Joseph lay. So at 17, he's daddy's favorite. By the time this kid blinks, he has been stripped of his dignity, thrown into a well, right? The thought, the plot to kill him by his brothers thwarted. He gets sold to a band of gypsy traders. They take him to Egypt and they sell him to a man named Potiphar, who was a captain of the guard. Life changes pretty quickly, does it? All because his brothers hated him. Well, that wasn't enough. He becomes semi-famous in Potiphar's house. Potiphar trusted him to run everything. Potiphar's wife, she trusted him as well because she wanted him to sleep with her. So the Bible records her desire to pursue Joseph, who scripture says was young and handsome, right? And pursued him and pursued him until one day she had him cornered and he fled. And she took his coat. And when her husband got home, she lied and told him a story. And she said, when the master, her husband, Potiphar, heard the story his wife told him, which was, he tried to rape me when I screamed, I kept his coat, and he fled. So she lied, told her husband this story. She said, this is how your slave, Joseph, treated me. So he burned with anger. Now what happens? Joseph's master, Potiphar, took him, put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. So he goes from daddy's favorite into a hole, being sold, being sold again, and now he's in prison for simply being an upright fella. While in prison, he meets people who are thrown there from Pharaoh's court. And they have dreams, and Joseph, through God, interprets those dreams. And he tells the cupbearer, right, when you get out and this comes true, don't forget me. Chief cupbearer, however, didn't remember Joseph. He forgot him. Listen to the next verse. Two full years had passed, right? I don't know about you, but if I'm Joseph, I am angry at my brothers for starting this whole thing. Yes or no? Can anybody see why Joseph would be angry with these brothers of his? These were his enemies. They trashed him. By the time we get to Genesis 30 or 45, Joseph is now 39 years old. It's been 22 years since the day those brothers threw him into a well and sold him to the Ishmaelites. And we now know, we now know that Joseph knows who these brothers are because they've come begging for food. And Joseph, he sort of played with them. He's lied to them, deceived them, tricked them, right? To try to make them feel bad. He's even thrown Simeon in jail. But by the time we get to Genesis 45, after 22 years, 
of carrying all of this with him. We get to Genesis 45, and I'm going to ask you to stand as we read these verses so we can just catch up here. Here's what happens in Genesis 45 after 22 years of carrying the burden of that kind of hatred and animosity. It says Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants. (coughs) And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were what? You can picture that, right? 22 years is the first time they'd seen that boy since they threw him into a well and sold him. They thought he was dead. Guess what? He's the most powerful man in the world. I'm sure they're terrified. They couldn't speak in his presence, right? Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me in the Hebrew. That means a term of infection, a term of uh, affection with his brothers, right? It's safe. You can come near me. When they had done so, he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, the one who you sold into slavery. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been famine in this land. And next five years, there's not going to be any plowing and reaping. And he said, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth. And to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh or advisor, counselor. Lord of his entire household and ruler of all of Egypt. Hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God's made me Lord of all of Egypt. Come down to me and don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me. You, your children, your grandchildren, your flocks and your herds and everything that you have. I'm going to provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you become destitute. So Joseph tells his brothers, you can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honor accorded me in Egypt and about everything that you have seen and bring my father down here quickly. You guys can be seated. So I told the, I told the group last night, and I'll tell you the same thing. So I've only got, I've only got two points in my sermon Right, so I can try to get you out of here on time. Right? Yeah. Because they say that the first way, the first way to get over your problems is to first admit that you have them, okay? So, uh, we're gonna do our best to get through these two points, and they're pretty simple, right? Because I believe that there are a couple lessons from Joseph's story here in Genesis 45 that you and I can learn from in 2023. And here's the first one. So everybody in the land, everybody online, everybody in here, let's read these three words together. Love. Man, as I look over the landscape of our nation today, I'm not sure that there's a topic that more that we shouldn't be talking about more often in church than these three words, love your enemies. Anybody here disappointed with the direction that our nation has taken? Yeah, certainly are. And listen, it doesn't take a genius to get on social media, right? Or to get online or even to watch your TV to find out how much discord and anger there is between groups of people in our nation today, right? It's just not hard. And here's the problem. 
As you look across the landscape of the response of the church and our nation over the last several years, since all this has become such a big deal, the response of the church has been nowhere near these three words. Say it with me, church. Love. It's been nowhere near that. Right? It's had been close. Listen to what Jesus says about this. Because, listen, we would all agree that Joseph, when he came face to face with these these brothers of his that started this 22-year disastrous at times journey, right? That these brothers considered themselves to be Joseph's enemy and treated him that way. And this man has carried this issue with him for 22 years. And he's finally face to face with them. And when he gets in front of them, he, of all people, has all the power in the world to do whatever he wants. And I would say that we would all agree that Joseph loved his enemies in that moment, did he not? He said, don't beat yourselves up about this. Don't hate yourselves for this. As a matter of fact, just let this stuff go. Listen to what Jesus says about loving your enemies. Jesus said this, but I tell you who hear me, come on, say it with me, church, love and do good. Do good to those that hate you, right? Bless, this is a verbal thing, right? Bless those who curse you. Use your mouth for blessing and not cursing, right? Pray for those who mistreat you. Right? If someone strikes you on one cheek, this is how you live this out. Right? If someone strikes you on one cheek, listen, what do you do? You turn to him, the other also. He goes on to say, if someone takes your coat, your outer garment, don't stop him from taking the inner garment as well. He says, give to who? Everyone who asks. And if what? Anyone takes what belongs to you, Read it with me, church. Do not. Come on, let's be honest. Don't you hate sometimes what the Bible says? I mean, seriously. I mean, let's not kid ourselves. Everybody who's watching the land, everybody's watching online, and everybody's listening here. That sounds like something Jesus would say. But it doesn't sound like something we're going to do. That's the way that most of it is treated, right? Listen, if somebody takes something that doesn't belong to them, Jesus says, don't demand it back. Just let them have it. Yeah, that sounds like something Jesus would say. Instead, it's something Jesus has commanded us to do. In 2023, Jesus commanded us, come on, say it with me, church, love your enemies. Love your enemies. He goes on to say this, do to others as you would have them do unto you. If you love, listen to this, if you love those who simply love you, What credit, that's an accounting term, meaning add to, right? What credit, what is added to you? Even those that don't know Jesus love those who love them. And he says, and if you simply do good to the people who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even those that don't know Jesus do that. And he says, and if you simply give money to people whom you expect repayment from, how is that a credit to you? Even people who don't know Jesus do that stuff. If you don't believe me, just go to any local bar in any local community and you'll find people there who would claim they don't love Jesus and they're as good to people who love them as we are to those who love us. And here's what he says. You don't get no pat on the back for that. You don't get on a pat on the back for being kind to people that are kind to you. 
Because even people who don't know Jesus are kind to those who are kind to them. And then he says, come on, read it with me, church. But love your enemies and do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. He says, then your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high. Listen, the one thing that sticks out about Joseph in chapter 45 is we got a living, breathing version of a man that loved his enemies. I don't know. I don't know if there's anything greater that the church can do to impact our nation in 2023 more than these three words. Learning how to love our enemies. Because it seems to me that in light of what's taking place in our nation... Right At our state level, at our federal level, what's happening on an individual level, that the hatred toward people who love Jesus is increasing. And yet, unfortunately, as you look across the landscape of the, of the nation that we live in, not only is the hatred toward those who love Jesus growing, the hatred of those who love Jesus toward their enemies is growing too. And Jesus said we should, say it with me, church, love your enemies, right? First Peter says it this way, right? Peter says, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, right? Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. Listen to this one. Don't repay evil with evil or what? With insult. Listen, that one right there, man, that hammers home to some of your social media accounts, right? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he says you don't repay an insult for an insult. How many people's social media accounts would look amazingly different right now if they just practiced that? Don't repay an insult for an insult, but with blessing, right? Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil, right? And his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil, do good, seek peace, and pursue it, right? Love your enemies. Man, I don't know. I'm going to be honest with you, as a father, and as a husband, and as a pastor, and as a believer of 40 years, I want nothing more than our, than, than God's people to learn how to love their enemies. Because I'm not sure that there's anything that's going to make a bigger difference in a person's life. Because I, I can tell you, if you're in Deland or you're online and you're in here and you love Jesus because you know he loved you first, let me hear you say Amen. Listen to what Romans 5 says. This is why this is such a big deal for us to get. And listen, I don't care how right you think you are. Because if we're debating intelligence with those whom you consider to be your enemies, you may be right. You may be smarter than the average bear. Right? You may have a legitimate argument. Right? But we're not talking about being right. We're talking about being righteous. And there's a huge difference for Christians in being right versus being righteous. Righteous people, say it with me, church, love your enemies. Romans 5 says this, you see, just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for who? Come on, say it with me, he died for the who? The ungodly. 
He died for those who were against him, who weren't for him, right? Very rarely is someone going to die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die, right? But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While you and I were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? Somebody should say amen to that, right? Since we have now been justified by his blood, he says, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Now listen to the language that Paul uses. Listen, if you know Jesus, love Jesus because you know he loved you first, say amen. Listen to the language he uses of us. He says, for if when we were God's what? Listen, the Bible says you should love your enemies. Amen. Listen to what God did. He doesn't say love your enemies because he doesn't know how to do it. The Bible says when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. You want to know why loving your enemies is such an important thing for believers to do? Because while we were God's enemies, he loved us. And if you know Jesus this morning, and if you know Jesus in the land, and if you know Jesus online, you know the power of love when it comes from somebody who you consider to be your enemy. God loved us while we were his enemy. And the Bible says we love him because he loved us first. Somebody say amen. Listen, I don't know about you, but I want my nation to be a nation of morality based on God's word. Somebody say amen. I want my state of Florida to be a state of morality and wisdom based on God's word. Somebody say amen. I want our schools that raise our children to be institutions where you can pray and you can teach God's word. Somebody say amen. You want to know how we do that in a world full of dark, dark, dark people in a world full of enemies? We love our enemies. Instead, our approach in 2023 has been to argue and to spit hate and to to debate and to get in people's faces and call people stupid and tell them they have no common sense. Listen, that is not the fight we're fighting if you love Jesus. The fight we're fighting if we love Jesus is to keep people from the eternal flames of hell. Somebody say amen. You know how we do that? We love our enemies. We love our enemies. I'm only a believer because I can name at least 10 people who loved me when I was their enemy. Every Wednesday and every Sunday, these people drove by my house when I treated them like garbage. And every Wednesday and every Sunday, Ray and Debbie Dial stopped at my house with their old nasty green colored Cordoba. And they marched up to that door of that old rickety house and they knocked on that door and my sisters piled into that car and my brother piled into that car. And I pretended to be asleep or I slammed my bedroom door or I cussed at him and told him to leave. And every Wednesday and every Sunday they stopped by that house. Until one day I got into that stupid ugly green Cordoba. And I met people that loved me even when I was their enemy. I stole money from them. I stole gas from them. I wrecked their car. I lied to them. And you know what they did? They loved me. And they introduced me to other people that loved me. I know the power of love when it comes from people who you treat as your enemy. And I know it's the only reason that I believed what God said to me through his word. Because I saw the power of that love in action toward me. And listen, there are people in your life right now, 
on a personal level, that there is so much pain and discord and animosity. Listen, you want to fix your marriage? For some of you, it starts with these three words. Love your enemy. You want to fix your family? For a lot of you, it starts with these three words. Love your enemy. You want to fix fix the racial injustice, bias, and prejudice, and racism in our country? Love your enemy. Listen, at the end of the day, when we boil what we are down to its irreducible minimum, we are people who are the beneficiaries of a God who loved his enemy. Amen? And so what does he say to us? Hey, I'd be really, really happy if you guys would try to love your enemies. No, that's not what he said. In the Greek, in the Greek, this is a command. In the Greek, it is love your enemies, exclamation point. It's not an option. It's not an interrogative. It's not a question. It's something we're expected to do. Joseph loved his enemies. We are to love our enemies as well. And how about the second point, right? See God at work. See God at work. Let me read this passage to you. This is the second Kings. So Elisha, not Elijah, Elisha was a prophet who followed Elijah. And Elisha had been thwarting, right, the king, right, the king of the Syrian army's plans. And the king was furious because every time he tried to go somewhere, he was defeated because somebody was leaking his battle plan. And he finally said, go find out where Elisha is so I can send my men and I can capture him. He's had enough of it. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent his horses, his chariots, a strong force there. They went by night and they surround the entire city, right? When the servant of the man of God gets up early the next morning, right? An army with horses and chariots has surrounded the city. So you have a prophet and you have a servant, no weaponry. He walks out of his tent and surrounding the city is all of the Syrian army. He says in some of the most underwhelming words in scripture. Oh my Lord, what shall we do? Right? I would have said it a lot differently, right? No panic in his voice. And what does Elijah say? Elijah says, right? Some of the most infuriating words in scripture. Don't be afraid. An unarmed prophet and his servant have got this under control, right? Don't be afraid, he says. And then what happened? He says, those who are with us, One, two, one, two, one, two, one, two. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then he says, he prayed, Lord, open his eyes so he may what? So he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes. And the Bible says he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Something powerful that happens when you see God at work in your life. Amen. How many people in Deland, how many people online, how many people here in Norman have ever seen God at work in their lives? Right? Listen, when you can, when you can identify God at work in your life, you see that, it makes a difference. Amen. 
What a powerful thing. I added this scripture, this second King scripture yesterday afternoon at 345. God gave me this scripture to add to my sermon. And every time, as always happens, when you stand in the back at 430, right? And there's a room full of people out here. And there's going to be three more rooms full of people out there. No matter how long you preach, you stand in the back. And a little bit of doubt creeps in that have you written anything or are you prepared to preach anything that anybody's got any interest in hearing, right? You always have about a nerves back there. And as I'm standing back there, having added this scripture, the last scripture I added to my sermon... Deidre gets up here and the song she sings before I come out to preach is, I'm surrounded, I'm surrounded by you. And guess what verse that song was written about? Second Kings chapter six. And here's the crazy thing. Here's the crazy thing. We, me and Charles and Mel didn't talk about what I was preaching about. They didn't ask me what I was talking about. They just picked that based upon God's leading and put that song. Not only did they put the song in it, they put it right before I came out to preach. Just to remind me, hey, Cord, I want you to see me at work in your life. It calmed me down immediately. Listen, there's a power in seeing God at work. I want you to notice something about Elisha. Are about Joseph here. I want you to see what happens to Joseph's life in Genesis 45, right? Joseph has had 22 years of carrying this stuff, 22 years of hatred toward these guys that ruined his life. Listen to what happens in Genesis chapter 45 as we pick up the narrative. Skip Genesis 16 there, right? Genesis 45. And now, don't be distressed. This is Joseph to his brothers who sold him to the gypsies, who sold him to Potiphar, who threw him into prison. To meet a cupbearer who forgot him for two years before he finally gets out of jail. Joseph says, don't be distressed and don't be angry with yourselves. He gives them love even though they're his enemies. Because it was to save lives. Listen to what Joseph says after 22 years of blaming those men. Don't beat yourselves up. It was God who sent me ahead of you. Right? He goes on to say this. He says, for two years now, there's been famine in the land. And now, for the next five years, there's not going to be plowing and reaping. There's going to be five more years of famine. Everybody online, everybody in the land, everybody here, read this with me. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve life for you, a remnant on earth, to save your lives by a great deliverance. Right? Right? Read it again. So then, it was not you. Bring that verse back up. Bring that next verse. Next verse. But, no. You're going the wrong way, the other way. There you go. Right here again. So then, it was not you who sent me here. Everybody, say it with me. But God. Isn't it amazing that for 22 years, 22 years, if you'd asked Joseph, he'd have told you his brothers started this whole debacle. For 22 years, he'd have blamed them. But look what happens when he loves his enemies. The first thing that happens when he lets, lets it go is he sees what? He sees God at work. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand in here. I'm not going to ask you to do that. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand in here or into land or wherever you're at watching online. But I'm going to guess right now that there are some of you that would love to see God at work in your marriage. My guess is there are some of you that would love to see God at work in your family. Maybe you'd love to see God at work in your finances. Maybe you'd love to see God at work. You name it. Fill in the blank. Let me tell you something about loving your enemies. There is a, there is a blindness that comes to people who won't let that go. And 
For some of you, the only reason you can't see God is because of this issue right here. Matthew chapter 5 verse 8 says this. Check this out. Everybody online, the land, Orman, read this with me. Blessed are the in heart, for they will... See, here's the thing about that word pure. It means without mixture. It means without anything added to it. It means 100% pure, clean. There's nothing rotten or foul. There's nothing sick in it. Nothing diseased in it. He says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will what? See God. Do you know many Christian people who love Jesus never see God at work? Ever see God at work? And part of the reason they don't is because their heart's not pure. And one of the things that most people carry in their heart is some kind of bitterness or animosity or unforgiveness towards somebody in their lives. Do you know how many husbands would see God at work in their marriage if they simply forgave their wives? Do you know how many wives would see God at work in their marriage if they simply let go of their bitterness toward their husband? Do you know how many families would see God at work if they would simply let things go? Listen, Joseph couldn't see God at work until he said, let this go, boys. You don't have to carry this around anymore. This isn't your fault. And as soon as he did, what did he say? God sent me here. God sent me here. He was willing to give credit to God for all 22 years of his messed up life that started in a well that his brothers threw him in. And the only person he could mention was, God sent me here. God sent me here. Listen, my guess is that for this many people and that many people in the land and that many people online, there's a lot of issues that people have in their hearts that's keeping them from seeing God. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21. He said, you've heard it was said to people long ago, don't murder. And anyone who murders is going to be subject to judgment. Listen to what Jesus said. But I'm going to tell you that anyone who is angry with their brother is going to be subject to judgment. To Jesus, there's no difference between anger and murder, right? Again, anyone who says, let's be clear, Jesus isn't telling us we're playing the same game that the world's playing. Jesus says, I'm going to tell you right now that if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, first of all, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ in Ormond, the land online, let me hear you say amen. amen. Jesus said, we ain't playing the same game the world's playing. Murder may get you before before the judge in the world, but if you're living in the kingdom of God and following Jesus as his Lord, as, as your Lord and Savior, he says, I'm going to tell you right now that anger and murder, they're the same in my book. How many people do you think are guilty of murder today because they think anger is acceptable for those who follow Jesus? Jesus says they're not. Anyone who says to his brother Raka, he's going to be answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, they're going to be dangerous of the fire of hell. There are a lot of people right now in church, in Ormond, in the land, online, that think it's perfectly okay to be angry and follow Jesus. Jesus said, you're subject to the judgment of hell if you carry that anger, because it's the same as murder. Jesus said, love your enemies. He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, you're getting ready to worship. And remember, your brother has something against you. He says, you know what you do with your gift, your act of worship? He says, you keep it. Right? You keep that gift there in front of the altar. And you go and be reconciled to your brother. Then you can come and you can worship. Listen, I don't know where you're at today. But my guess is some of you need to leave a gift at an altar and you need to go be reconciled to somebody. Because Jesus said it. Three little words. Say it with me, church. Love your enemies. Renee Napier was a mother of a beautiful daughter named Megan. Lived in Pensacola. She raised her to love Jesus. Took her to church. 
And Megan and her friend Lisa Dixon were in Pensacola one evening driving. And a young man named Eric Smallridge who'd made a bad decision that night. His bad decision wasn't to drink. His bad decision was to turn on a $20 cab ride and to drive himself home. And Eric Smallridge on that night ran his car into Megan Napier and Lisa Dixon's car and he killed them on May the 11th in 2002. A drunk driver, a good kid, raised by good people who just made a bad decision that night, took the lives of two people. And Eric Smallridge was sent to 22 years in prison for involuntary manslaughter. That was in 2002. In 2004, Renee Napier, Megan's mom, started the Megan Napier Foundation to travel around the nation and teach people about the dangers of driving, right, while using alcohol and drugs. Two years later, in 2006, she found herself in a courtroom where Eric Smallridge was there. And not only did they forgive that man for killing their daughter, they stood before the judge and they asked him to reduce his sentence in half. Here's a picture of that day in court where Megan and Eric met in a courtroom. That man having driven his car into her daughter's car and having killed her and her friend. Not only did they forgive Eric and not only did they plead for the judge to cut his sentence in half. And the judge granted. In 2010, the judge granted a special request for Eric, though he had two more years of incarceration to carry out, for him to travel with Megan around this nation to schools and communities and to talk about the dangers of driving under the influence of drugs and alcohol. They also traveled around and talked about the power of forgiveness. And today they're doing the exact same thing. In spite of what happened, in spite of what Eric did, Eric said, it was the love that these people gave to me when I was their enemy and they hated me that changed my life. Right? <laughs> Renee, Renee Napier said, hate, hate is insidious. And she said it wasn't about how we felt because they asked her. Everywhere she goes, people ask her, how did you forgive this man? And she said it wasn't easy because it wasn't based on how we feel. She said it was based on our faith. And simply obeying Jesus when he said, love your enemies. It makes a difference, church. Listen, I, you know people and I know people who don't believe like we do. And we both live in the same world and I'm guessing we all want the same thing. We want a better nation, different nation. Listen, we can stand and scream at the moon all we want. Or we can start doing what Jesus asked us to do. We can learn how to love our enemies and do good to those who hate us. So listen, if you're online in Deland or here in Ormond today, and this all needs to start with you getting right with God by accepting Jesus because he loved you when you were his enemies, right? If you're online, just push that button that says, I have decided. If you're in, in Deland, Pastor Ryan will be there. If you're here, there'll be people up front or we have a room out and down to the right called Guidance Point that we'd love to meet you there. Now listen, if you're just here today or in Deland or online that just needs somebody to pray with you to help you learn how to do this better, listen, we would love to be able to do that with you. But it's time for the world that we live in to understand that we're not playing their game. We're following a different set of rules. And that means when we are faced with our enemies, we learn how to love them the way Jesus loved us. Amen, church? So Father, today my prayer is for our church. For our church locally, in our communities like Deland, online, and here, and all the communities that are represented.
Lord, I want to see your people. I want to see me learn how to love our enemies the way you loved us. I'm sick of fighting their fight. I'm sick of acting like we have to win their game. You came because there was a different game to be played. And this one was for eternity. So, Lord, I want your church, Tomoka Christian Church here in Ormond, in Deland, online. I want your church universal to become a place where we love our enemies. Well, we do it not because we feel it. We do it because it's commanded by our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, I'm grateful that you saw fit when we were your enemy to love us. Teach us to do the same. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.